Welcome to the Strange Bird Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Roxy Music and Pajama Rama, one of the great glam-related singles back from the early 1970s. That song is one of the highlights of an excellent new compilation out, Oh You Pretty Things, Glam Queens and Street Urchins, 1970-76, to 76, out on Cherry Red. I've got the huge pleasure to welcome, again, the compiler of that set and many other fabulous collections, David Wells. Welcome. Yep. Hi, Jason. Um, yep, yep. How are you? I'm really, really good. We always, on this sort of uh, show with you on a range of those sets, talk about um, the criteria and the concept for the various collections uh, that you compile what was the concept and criteria for Glam Queens and Street Urchins? Yeah, I, I guess this is slightly idiosyncratic, but I, I've always kind of, as somebody who was growing up at that point, it was like 12 or 13 when people like Bowie and Roxy Music emerged, I always thought that that genre, that nascent genre, was kind of hijacked by some of the um, some of the backroom uh, boys in, in the British pop industry, people like Mickey Most, Chin and Chapman, the songwriters, uh, Mike Leander. And really the, what interested me at that age, I think a lot of other people as well, was was kind of the uh, the more, call it cooler, I guess, people like Bowie and Roxy coming along, New York Dolls in America, 
that kind of poster, the underground thing from Lou Reed, Ian the Stooges, that kind of thing. So, so that was really the, uh, the, the the driving force behind it was to reposition it as glam rock as opposed to glam pop. Hmm. So there's no mud, there's no Alvin Stardust, there's no Gary Glitter, although you probably couldn't play that stuff nowadays anyway. <laughs> um, but nothing, I've got nothing against that stuff. It, it's just that to me, that's not kind of what glam rock was about. And I, I think it was hijacked a little bit, like I say, by people within the industry who thought we can we can cut this down to two and a half minute pop songs, lots of hand clapping, lots of choruses, and that will do the job. That will get on the radio. Whereas, you know, even it, it seems weird uh, now of 1972 and Roxy Music. We just heard um, Pajama Armour coming out of nowhere, really, and being sneered at in the industry almost because they hadn't paid their dues, as they used to say, um, that they w- were considered to be almost a manufactured band. And, and Roxy Music, like the famous Bowie appearance with Starman uh, alongside Mick Ronson, uh, the first Roxy Music appearance on Top of the Pops was quite staggering if you were 12 or 13 years old at the time. And they just looked like creatures from an alien planet, really. Yeah, for me, one of the archetypal bands of this genre and complete one-offs, really, originators. Well, I think Roxy Music had that kind of pop art background. I mean, Brian Ferry had been um, taught, uh, his art tutor was, was Richard Hamilton. It's one of the leaders of the pop art movement. So something like Virginia Plain, for instance, was based on a fairy painting. Um, so you didn't get that from Tiger Feet, for instance. <laughs> Again, the, although you, you, you talk about it doesn't contain the, the likes of mud, you do have a, a range of artists that um, are well-known, a few kind of unreleased demos there as well. So you've got that full sort of gamut. I, I think what struck me about putting it together was how much amazingly good stuff there was that was unreleased at the time. Sometimes when, when we're doing these compilations, you can say, well, that's quite interesting. It was never been heard before, so people should hear it. But on this occasion, as you'll hear later in the show, uh, one or two of the unreleased things up until now are staggeringly good. I think everybody, when we talk about pop bands jumping on the bandwagon, basically being given the song to go into the studio and sing, that that's not what I think glam rock is about. But there were bands like you know we had we've got a, a Thin Lizzy track on the on the anthology, Little Darling, which is clearly an attempt to to get on the radio. And, and do the glam rock thing. But, you know, obviously nobody associates Thin Lizzy with the glam rock because they're a, basically a hard rock band. Um, but everybody dipped their toes into the water, even people like Paul McCartney and John Lennon. You listen to Junior's Farm or, or Helen Wheels and their glam rock songs. It, it was something that was immensely popular for a year or two, and it did sow the seeds for punk as well, as, as we'll come to later in the show. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think it's an important genre that has kind of been subsumed by, by the popular element. And although there are um, some US acts on here, there's, it does seem predominantly um, British artists. And Sparks being our next song, being Barbecue Tea, is a case where the Mail Brothers come over from California to London. That's right. The Mail Brothers, as, as part of the um, American rock band, pop band Sparks, made two great albums for Bearsville, especially the second one, A Woof in Tweeter's Clothing, which is phenomenal. Uh, they came over here and they picked up two or three uh, British musicians, including Martin Gordon, who went on to Jet and Radio Stars. Um, and he he plays the, uh, the Rickenbacker bass solo at the beginning of this B-side that we're about to play, Barbecue which I think was the B-side of um, this kind of big enough for both of us, which is the one that everybody remembers, of course, for that 
sort of astonishing mm-hmm. Top of the Pops appearance again where apparently John Lennon saw it and he shouted out to Yoko and oh look it's Hitler on the telly so so yeah again Bar Beauty it just shows how much talent there was at that point it's just uh, thrown away as a B-side didn't even make the album um, uh, Kimono My House and it's got a great lyric about <laughs> like most of Ron Mayo's songs it's got this amazing lyric about about how this guy has gone to be uh, an Arctic explorer and leaves his girlfriend at home. And in his absence, his girlfriend becomes extremely popular at barbecues. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not a song that uh, you would think that that has much commercial potential, to be honest. Maybe that's why they put it on the B-side, but still it's a great track. And like I say, a great great opening uh, bass solo by, by Martin Gordon. Next artist is extremely well known. 
one of the things about it for me, uh, we have Lou Reed and Satellite of Love, is hearing the original sort of demo that the Velvets did compared to the version that, that Lou and David Bowie and Mick Ronson did when Lou was over here. A very different approach. I think so. Also, the other underground um, demo has uh, that really embarrassing section about uh, um, I you've been bold or winking, blinking and nod because he couldn't think of, of names that, that fitted at that time. <laughs> so it is a, a, a demo and those Velvet Underground demos obviously are fantastic. Um, Loaded is a great album when they decided yeah. to go in a more pop direction. And I think that is the basis of, of the glam rock thing that uh, Bowie we latched on to, to the pop element of what was an underground rock band. Mm. And I think that's, that's what, um, obviously, Queen Bitch is the famous Bowie track that was um, based on a very underground uh, um, sound. But um, there's, a, there's a lot of, of tracks like that on Ziggy Stardust, which, and there we go, uh, his newfound fame and that he could approach people he loved, like Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, and, and push their own um, careers in, in the right direction. And stuff like I love, apart from it's a great song anyway, but it's got a fantastic vocal on the out by Bowie yeah. towards the end of the song. So we could we could get we could get a Bowie track, but we managed <laughs> to make sure he was he was scattered either and yawn on on the on the compilation, you know. Yeah, well you can hear him loud and clear towards the end. Oh yeah, deafening almost almost like he thought <laughs> this is my centre stage moment again. <laughs> Satellites gone up to the skies. Like that drive me out of my mind I watched it for a little while I like to watch things on TV Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite Satellite's gone way up to Mars Soon it'll be filled with parking cars I watched it for a little while I love to watch things on TV Harry, Mark, and John Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday to Thursday With Harry, Mark, and John Satellites gone up to the skies Things like that drive me out of my mind I watched it for a I love to watch things on TV
So now we have Duncan Brown. Send me the bill for your friendship. Again, fascinating song. Duncan Brown had recorded a fantastic album with uh, for Andrew Lou Oldham's immediate label in 68 called Give Me Take You, a real baroque pop masterpiece. But he was shocked after the, the album came out and, and the immediate was struggling, this is a couple of years later, to receive a bill for the album, for the cost of the album, over £2,000 from Oldham, who was um, running out of cash fast. This is his response in song to that. So, um, yeah, it's a really strong lyric again, but it's got that great mm. um, kind of chunky guitar sound as well, which we don't maybe associate with Duncan Brown, but um, obviously he went on to Metro, who did Criminal World, which was covered by Bowie, and Metro are a good band in their own right. But um, this is kind of, again, it's a non-album single and another thing that should be wider known than it is. So was Mickey Most involved in this then? Yeah, Mickey Most, he'd, um, he'd also got involved with Donovan. He'd obviously been involved in the 60s with Donovan, but for the Cosmic Wheels album, that's got, again, that's got a kind of glam rocky sound. It's got Susie Quattro on backing vocals. And I think he did the same with Duncan Brown. Um, apparently he heard the album, Duncan played him some demos, and he said, go and write a hit single. And he did with Journey which I still remember him performing on Top of the Pops, and he was really nervous, clearly, about performing solo on, on the show. Uh, but this is um, the follow-up, I think, uh, about nine months later, sent me that bill for your friendship. And again, you think, why wasn't this a hit? Yeah, because Journey was a bit more singer-songwritery, whereas this had more of that glam. Yeah, Journey was something that could have come out in the late 60s, it is that kind of singer-songwriter, acoustic guitar feel to it i mean mickey most is very good at framing songs you would hear the, the outline of a song and he would get the right backing with it like i said earlier so so yes it's uh again it, it's mickey most but paying respects to the artist's own songs as opposed to teaming up with Gene and chapman to just churn out the production line stuff Send me the bill for your friendship And I'm 
the more muscular side of the genre and heavy metal kids the cops are coming was this a true story from the lead singer gary holton well it's supposed to be a true story i hope all the lyrics aren't true because it's a bit dodgy in places <laughs> um shall we say but uh, yeah it's supposed to be about when he was arrested for stealing a car although he was next stage school or um ingenue so whether he kind of um was economic with the truth or not, I don't know. But uh, he certainly could th- strike a pose like a lot of, you know, Michael Desbars, is it, from uh, Silverhead? Yeah, I was thinking of him. Yeah, it's a similar sort of sound. But it, they were at the same stage school together, I think. And the same with oh, okay. um, the guy who was in um, the pre-Hamsmith Gorillas band, Crushed Butler. Oh, yeah. Oh, he, yeah. He'd had a band with, is it Daybars, I think, Daybars or something? Um, Daybar, yeah. Yeah, at, at, uh, at stage school. Uh, that was his first band, about 67. So, yeah, I, I think heavy metal kids do come from that kind of street urchin type thing but how much i mean obviously we all know what happened to gary holton but um yeah. it's again it's a good song it's just buried away on their second album and again after this they linked up with mickey most for she's, <laughs> she's no angel and the third album so again there's, there's like a, a fault line almost here of, of uh mickey most having having golden ears in terms of knowing what the top 30 was about and thinking i can make something of this band Oh. 
Dolls personality crisis. I, I just have memories or, or, or video of them on the old Grey Whistle test on this. It's a real forceful track. I think that the old Grey Whistle test is one of the starting points of, of British punk. Um, you know, all the people who are kind of my age at that time, all that sneering about mock rock, that sounds quite fun actually, <laughs> as opposed to some of the um, sort of 20 minute guitar solos and all that sort of stuff. Um, the idea of things getting back to basics. I mean, New York Dolls were as influenced 
by Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry as they were by the Rolling Stones um, or anything that came later. So it, there was kind of like a, a back-to-basics feel to that stuff. Um, and Personality Crisis is a good example. Produced by Todd Rundgren as well. Yeah, I love Todd, but um, I suspect he was quite, <laughs> he was always quite difficult to work with. Um, <laughs> uh, I know Andy Partridge tells a few tales about XTC um, and, and there are plenty of other bands. I remember him saying about Grand Funk Railroad that he produced them because you couldn't understand why they were popular. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, being produced by Todd was a bit of a, um, a double-edged sword, I would think. Uh, and I don't think he, he said himself he never really got the New York Dolls. He just said that they were a second-generation Rolling Stones, which is exactly the point, really. And the New York Dolls and Iggy Pop, you can just see that direct lineage into the the British punk scene. I think so, yeah. We've got New York Dolls, we've got Iggy Pop on there. We've also got Jane County, as she's now known, um, who was in the band Queen Elizabeth, who used to perform on double bills with the New York Dolls um, back in 72 or so. So, yeah, they, obviously Jane County then comes to England and starts a punk band. Uh, but I think this, the American glam rock bands did mutate into into punk you know the Ramones were big fans of that scene and uh, we've got the dictators as well um you've got television that kind of artier type feel but again all springing from the new york clubs uh from the new york club scene and uh yeah i i think that there's obviously a direct link between glam rock especially the kind of more muscular sounding things the more androgynous and punk but Punk seems to have this this reputation as as springing as an original uh, <laughs> an original movement in '76 with with the um, mm. with Sex Pistols and so and I love that stuff. Mm. Uh, but I would say that people like Peter Hamill, who again we couldn't clear for this compilation mm. with the Ricky Nadir thing. Um, you know, if you play Birthday Special and then the first Sex Pistols song, first Sex Pistols single together, you would be hard pressed to tell the difference. Mm. So, so again, that glam rock thing, you know, it's back to basics. I'd say two and a half minutes, three minute songs, lots of guitar, lots of riffing. And yeah, I, I think there's a direct lineage.
so our next track is Sweet the 16s. Now, this is a Chin and Chapman song, but it is a different side to Chin and Chapman, I would say. I, I think what it was, Sweet always fancied themselves as a rock band. Um, yeah. Some of the others were, were had a more kind of um, kind of pop marionette type feel. I mean, Mud had been hanging around Mitchum for years, you know, from since about '66, and they just wanted to be on top of the pops and have hit records and other bands as well. But Sweet did consider they came from the, a rock background, you know. Uh, Andy Scott had been in the Elastic Band in the late '60s, uh, and they wanted to make hard rock records. And the early Sweet singles are very kind of bubblegummy, obviously, uh, Funny Funny and Coco. Then they got a little bit tougher but it was still kind of um, a little bit cheesy. And I think eventually they said to Jim Chapman, look, we want a rock song. We don't want to do the pop stuff. And and Jim Chapman came up with what I still think is their best song, 16s. And then Turn It Down, the follow-up was a, was a flop and the sweet just wrote their own stuff from then on yeah the lyrics to the 16 of the melody as well but the, it's got a... it's a little epic four minute epic really uh, almost like um you know pete townsend used to talk about rock operas you know across yeah. an album but this is a rock opera in four minutes and um it's supposed to be written from the basis of the french revolution in 1968 the um the student uprising um but it's, uh, again, irrespective of what it's supposed to be, it's just, um, I think it's their finest moment. Where were you in 68? In 68, Julie was Johnny's date Two kids growing together Living each day as if time was slipping away
on the set Rosie and Rosie's coming to town so has this actually been issued before no it's never it's never come out before I was talking to the guy who'd been in five day rain uh, Rick Sharp and he'd then gone on to streak who an Anglo-American band a couple of them went on to be in the arrows again another uh, Mickey Mugs band um it's amazing that we've tried to avoid Mickey Mouse, and that's all we're talking about tonight. But anyway, um, so yeah, he he uh, formed this Anglo-German band called Rosie, and this was their theme tune, Rosie's Coming to Town. And once you hear the lyrics, you'll understand why it never came out. Um, mm. It's extremely dubious, but what a great kind of New York Dolls-style anthem it is. And like I say, never been uh, never been issued before by anybody. So it was a it was a real pleasure to get this one out. It sounds professionally done. It's a really good quality. Yeah, I they only made uh, they only cut four songs. I mean, he did know his way around the studio. Apart from Five Day Rain, he was in a band be, uh, before Street called Stud Pump, who uh, released a single I think on Penny Farthing. And uh, yeah, this is him on lead vocals. I think on on Five Day Rain, he'd shared it with Graham Maitland. But he was the uh, guitarist, and uh, yeah, this is um, a really strong song. Even though I think it was just a demo, it does sound professional, and they obviously knew their way around uh, around a song. And um, yeah, again, it's something that's never been heard before, never been out before, and and it's really um, one of the joys of doing a compilation like this. It's nice to put bands like Roxy Music and Sparks on here, but um, you can get a whole new. Um, a set of collectors interested in something that they wouldn't otherwise know existed.
Jim Lee was on the uh, the podcast about three years ago, and he said about this one that um, it was partially inspired, or certainly the the phrase "it was all right" came from "Everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey." Yes, well, on the first Slade album, they've got Martha, my dear, haven't they? And and any band growing up working in the second half of the sixties would have been influenced by the Beatles. So, but you wouldn't listen to "Take Me Back Home" and thought, "Oh, that's a Beatles rip off." Um, <laughs> no. It's just a hard rock thing, and and it got to number one. And and if you take it in isolation, if you take it away from some of uh, you know, come on, feel the noise, and mum, we're all crazy now. It doesn't have that end of the pier pantomime Dane element. It just sounds like a hard rock band who've somehow got to number one. Yeah, he he said that this was one of those tracks that they played live, especially at at festivals where all the doubters who thought that Slade were a pop band, it would just like yeah. they'd just be hit by the this great rock. Well, of course, they had a, like a second coming in the later 70s when they went down to yeah. Reading Festival. And they were, again, they were basically a rock band. But uh, Take Me Back Home, this is like the, the transition from them being like um, a successful band to being being one of the top bands. This was the start, I think, of a run of like five or six number ones in a trot. Uh-huh. 
Our next track is Hard Stuff and Ragman. This seemed to be a bit of a post-atomic rooster project plus uh, Johnny Gustafsson. That's right, yes. It was um, a couple of the guys, including John John Can or John Ducan from Atomic Rooster, who basically left Atomic Rooster even when they were like in the top five with, with one of Ducan's songs. Um, but Vincent Crane was a law unto himself and he decided he wanted to go in a different direction. And the drummer and John Ducan... Yeah. Uh, I think it's Paul Hammond, wasn't it, the drummer, um, uh, broke off and formed hard stuff with a guy from the Curiosity Shop on vocals and Johnny Gustafson, who'd been in the big three, obviously. He'd been in the Mersey Beats. He'd been at the end of episode six, which then became Quatermass. And obviously, collector interest in hard stuff it's mainly based around John Ducan, who was a bit uh, it was a bit of a self-publicist without putting him down or anything like that. His, his stuff, Andromeda, with Andromeda, was heavily kind of reissued from the last, for the last 20, 25 years. But this song is actually a Johnny Gustafsson song and lead vocal. And again, it's a classic glam rock as opposed to glam pop performance. But it was just buried away on their second album, I think it's Bolex Dementia, which wasn't particularly commercial. But that was the way it was. I think, as I said earlier, everybody was swept along by a glam rock sound and, and hard rock bands like Hard Stuff could actually turn it into a bit of a stomper. Uh, Johnny Gustafsson lit soon he, after. He went on to Roxy Music, yes. He was the bassist from, I think, the third album uh, for about another three years or so until they had their hiatus. But again, I think he was more or less an employee of the band, as, yeah. as the bassists tend to be in in, uh, in Roxy Music. Um, nobody stayed long, but uh, yeah, he went off to that. And then he was in uh, the Ian Gillan band after that. So even with the Mersey Beats, I mean, I, I noticed you interviewed Billy Kinsley uh, a while back, yeah. but Billy isn't on the, the music, Mersey Beats album. It's Johnny Gustafsson who writes the songs and is the vocalist when Billy was out of the band for about nine or ten months. So Johnny's kind of like been written out of, of rock history a little bit, but the Big Three were a great band. Even the Big Three reunion album in 73 is really good. So, yeah, this is a, a chance, rather than showcasing John Ducan on, on guitar and vocals, this is uh, Johnny Gustafsson's song and lead vocal. <laughs>
have the trogs and strange movies. And uh, this was a, a really interesting period for Reg and the guys. So they, so this is 1973 now, signed to Pi, but they hadn't had a hit for four or five years. That's right. I it's an interesting period for for the in terms of the uh, music they were putting out. But I suspect that the band weren't weren't thrilled. So if you're not having hit records, then you're you're nothing. Almost mm. after you've had like a whole run of them in the sixties. Strange movies. We mentioned Roses Come to Down earlier as being a non-PC lyric, and this is just the same. It's about um, witnessing or being in a, a pornographic film. <laughs> <laughs> and it was played by the Trogs at the 1980 Floor Show, which was Bowie's last appearance as Ziggy Stardust. There's some great footage online of of the Trogs moving around the stage to strange movies <laughs> <laughs> with Bowie in the background. It, it was done at the marquee, and um, yeah, look at those cavemen go. <laughs>
I don't know if you purposely placed these songs uh, next to each other, but we have a different approach now. And a raincoat, I love you for your mind, not your body. I love you for your mind, not your body. Yeah, when I first heard this on the radio in 75, I thought, oh my God, Roxy Music, we're having some fun. But it wasn't them at all. It was a raincoat, uh, Andy Arthurs, who went on to um, to write the Tonight hit, Drummer Man, uh, and, and work... Uh, with various bands, including including Brian Ferry, uh, but this was um, something he did just after he graduated from university. Again, a really lovely campy kind of Roxy meets Sparks crossover, and a lot of fun. And it just stalled outside the top fifty. I think I remember hearing it a lot on the radio at the time, but it's never been included on in any compilation before. Um, oh. It was an independent production, so EMI, which is now Warner's, um, don't own it. But I managed to track Andy down, and he gave his permission for us to use it. So, um, yeah, again, it's something that is nice to get out there on a compilation, because if it was left to a major label, you wouldn't find stuff like this. It's a bit lighter, it's it's witty, it's um, very melodic. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, obviously, Roxy Music and Brian Ferry did take themselves quite seriously. Sparks have more of a sense of humour, but this is something that you can imagine getting a lot of radio play, as I say it did, uh, because it does stand out as a potential hit single. Um, it's got that little bit in the middle where he stops to cough. It, it's got plenty of hooks, but it didn't quite make it. There's probably a strike at the record company or something like that. That's what, that's what bands always say when their record's not a hit. You know, hmm. there, was a, there was a strike at the record company. <laughs> we couldn't get the vinyl out. You know, everybody wanted it. They couldn't find it anywhere. We could have been contenders. And <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's true of I Love You For Your Mind, but it, like I say, it was played a lot on the radio at the time, 75. Um, it was that kind of novelty thing that kind of transcended its novelty status, I think. Andy went into production and engineering, didn't he? Yes, as I said, he, he worked with Brian Ferry. Um, he also worked as a songwriter, but I think he emigrated to Australia many years ago. And yeah, he he was he did, he did become a, a backroom presence in the late 70s in the British pop industry. And like I say, he wrote Drummer Man, which was a top 20 hit single for, for tonight, which I think had one of the other guys who was involved with the, the raincoat thing they were going to call their album uh, but it's actually called dig along and max at the end uh, but they were going to call it max m-a-c-s and then by graves but emi thought that that um, <laughs> max by graves was signed to pie at the time and it might have been a bit uh he might not have liked it too much so so they just went with dig along and max um but i think i think a raincoat's appeal can be summed up in three minutes really with this song
So now we have an artist who, over the last decade or so, his profile has, has just kept increasing. Jabriyev and Earthling. Now, Morrissey's uh, was quite integral in, in raising his profile, but um, looking to his history, there was quite a lot of record company support in, in the uh, early, mid-70s when, when he was signed. He was supposed to have been signed for half a million dollars by Electra, which, considering he was working as a prostitute at the time, was, was quite a, an upturn in his fortunes. Uh, but, um, yeah, I... <laughs> He was given the big hype treatment. I don't think any of the glam rockers really had much much success in their own country. Um, even Brett Smiley was launched over here. Iggy and the Stooges probably had a bigger following in, in England and Europe than they did at home. Lou Reed came to London to relaunch his career. And Jabriyev, he made two albums, but I remember he was absolutely savaged over here by the music press as just being a Bowie clone, which is not something you'd pick up from Earthling anyway. I mean, you can mm. say there's a, a slight obsession with um, place travel, whatever, that kind of alien feel to it. So I guess you could say that was taken from, from Bowie's um, um, late 60s, early 70s uh, recordings. But there's nothing really in the music that suggests he's indebted to Bowie in any way, really. But he didn't really... He he was kind of a victim of the hype. And, um, yeah, after those two albums for Electra, he kind of um, fell off the radar again. And sadly, he was one of the early sort of music industry deaths from AIDS in the early 80s. There seemed to be sort of almost separate music scenes in the US and, and the UK in times in the 70s and ploughing different paths. And... I, I, yeah, I... That's a tricky one because I, I think that glam rock more unites those two countries, really. But but you have people coming over here. You have Bowie um, and uh, Tanya DeFries, who was in charge of Main Man, employing basically all of the members of Pork, the uh, the Andy Warhol uh, thing. So so people like Jackie Curtis, who was a, a Warhol favourite, was supporting uh, Jane County's band and the New York Dolls. Bowie brought them all over here, and they they got positions within Main Man. They used to uh, go to all the RCA meetings and disrupt <laughs> disrupt them. Apparently, um, so you've got Donna Gillespie, uh, who's also on this compilation with uh, with the song, uh, yeah. her version of Andy Warhol. She went over to America and lived uh, lived in a hotel over there. So that, that I, I think it was the there is a, a kind of London New York axis there. You, obviously, you had Iggy and the Stooges, Lou Reed, all coming over here. Brett Smiley was launched over here uh, by Andrew Lou Golden because it didn't really appeal to Americans. Yeah, I was trying to get at is that commercially in the US. No, but I think that means there's a stronger link to England in the sense that most of them came yeah. over here. And there was a, a, you know, even Sparks played locally, done Max's Kansas City and all that sort of stuff, and came over here to do the marquee. Yeah. So I think... That was it, really. That America still had that a lot. There was a lot of that Bible Belt community kind of feel to it. That mm. the, these dreadful characters dressing up uh, as women almost—it wasn't for them. But in England, I mean, I've got this great quote from the New York Dolls manager about um, we decided we could make it in England because England was this sexually repressed country. <laughs> so that that was why they were launched launched in England. And then, of course, you got Malcolm McLaren ta- uh, taking over. And then a year or so later, putting yeah. uh, Sex Pistols together and um, learning from his mistakes with the New York Dolls almost. So, yeah, there, there's this, yeah, I understand what you're saying, that they were two different 
communities, Britain and America, in the early 70s in terms of music. So you had James Taylor over there and Carol King. And again, I'm not knocking that stuff, but there was no, there's no space really for the glam rockers, the outrageous androgynous individuals and bands. And most of them ended up here. The ones who stayed over there, like the highlights of 42nd Street, mean nothing. But ultimately, it's the UK music scene's gain. I, I think so. I, I think... Those people, the, the guy from New York Dolls who's, who's just died at Sylvain Sylvain, Sylvain, Sylvain uh, had said at the time that after the death of Billy Mercia, that was only when they got headlines in America, after he died um, when they were over here in late 72. Yeah, I, I, I think it does strengthen the links between the two countries in terms of glam rock, and that is why we included... Uh, we got Kim Fowley there as well in the Hollywood Brats, who was supposed to be um, his answer to the New York Dolls. I think there's a strong link, and it's just unfortunate that, that Jabrath was seen to be hanging on Bowie's coattails, really. Yeah. 
have a song and, and when I gave it a first listen I thought this sounds a bit like Lou Reed <laughs> <laughs> or a lot like Lou Reed. Well England's Glory it's recorded in January 73 uh, at um, a guitarist called Martin Jay's studio. Now Martin is quite interesting because he was in the band Airbus with a friend of mine Jeff Simpson but he'd also made a living in the 70s from doing the Toddler Pops cover versions of Bowie songs. He did Seven Seas of Rye he did the uh, Slade stuff, uh, Bolan, Rider White Swan, etc., etc. So he was making a living. <laughs> and meanwhile, England's Glory come into his studio, the studio that he owns, to record their own album. Made 25 copies of it. Uh, it's Venus Recording Studios. And at the time, the tapes were circulated to Nick Kent, who was like the, the big yeah. New Musical Express writer of the era. And he thought they were Velvet Underground Lou Reed outtakes. He genuinely thought that. So, yeah, Bright Lights fits perfectly into what I was just talking about, about the fact that England is also influenced by America. It's not just Americans coming to England and stealing ideas. Uh, It's more of a kind of trading thing where Peter Perrett had actually rehearsed in uh, in a studio adjacent to Lou Reed in mid-72 in London. And two or three of the songs on England's Glory he'd revisit in The Only Ones, but I don't think Bright Lights made it to The Only Ones. Uh, Again, a cracking song, and it does sound extremely Lou Reedish.
finish off this podcast with what i believe is the final song in the set mock the hoople and saturday gigs and that was a song that mock the hoople used to close their concerts with and was also the final track of mock the hoople themselves so it seems a very final note to finish it, on. it's a kind of a valedictory song anyway it, it looks back to glam rock did you see the suits and the platform boots so dear oh god oh my oh my and it's a very english song looking back at how they dressed up in some ways it's it's a shame because there are mock hoople songs that are probably more glam rocky than this but this is the obvious final song really um it's kind of looking back on that golden era only lasted a year or two really and it was as you say the the final Motley Hoople recording it was the one and only thing I think to feature Mick Ronson and then within a couple of months um, Ian Hunter had announced he was leaving with Mick Ronson to form the Hunter Ronson band Uh, we've also got um, a track from the first Ian Hunter album on here um, Once Bitten Twice Shy but um, I've not included that tonight but this is the obvious closer as I say David, as always, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Just to say that OU Pretty Things, Glam Queens and Street Urchins 1970-76 to is out now. And as always, it's got songs that you know, songs that you don't and songs that you should know. And there's another fine collection from you and Cherry Red. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Much appreciated. Yes, it was. Um, it does. It is quite special to me this era because when we when we're twelve or thirteen years old, that's when our opinions are formed. I think, especially our tastes in in music. And um, yeah, it was it was a fantastic time. And it's nice to actually have like four hours of this stuff under one roof. Even if nobody else buys it, I'll be playing it quite a lot. <laughs> I think it's gone down very well so far, hasn't it? It started off really well. Um, difficult to tell. Obviously, we're still um, hopefully at the fag end of the uh, the coronavirus thing, um, so things aren't back to normal yet. But um, yeah, we've still got uh, still ploughing away and still trying to do stuff that that appeals both to us and to everybody else. It's always nice to do something that you're really proud of, and uh, I hope it will do well so that we can maybe get out a second volume at some stage. Brilliant. Anyway, thanks thanks again, Jason, for inviting me. That's um, it's always really yeah, good to do too. these things. And right. bye.
Queen's Road flat was the place to be Cause Chelsea girls are the best in the world for company In 71 all the people come Lost a few seats but it's just in fun Take the mick out of top of the pops We play better than Ready to quit But then we went to Coida Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. 
to support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.